THE AIR by Vita Sackville West. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. STORY ONE THE AIR FOUR He was very glad when the funeral was over, and he was rid of all the strange neighbours who had wrung his hand and uttered commiserating phrases. He was also glad that the house should be relieved of the presence of his aunt, for he could tread henceforth unrestrained by the idea that the corpse might rise up, and with a pointing finger denounce his few and timorous orders. He stood now on the threshold of the library downstairs, looking at a bowl of coral-coloured tulips, whose transparent delicacy detached itself brightly in the sober-panelled room. He was grateful to the quietness that slumbered always over the house, abolishing fret as by a calm rebuke. His recollections of the funeral were, he found to his dismay, principally absurd. Mr. Fairbrother had sidled up to him, when he thought Nutley was preoccupied elsewhere, as they returned on foot up the avenue after the ceremony. A great pity the place should have to go, Mr. Fairbrother had said, trotting along beside him. Such a very great pity. Chase had agreed in a perfunctory way. Perhaps it won't come to that said Mr. Fairbrother, with a vague hopefulness. Chase again murmured something in the nature of agreement. "'I like to think things will come right until the moment they actually go wrong,' Mr. Fairbrother said with a smile. "'Very sad, too, the death of your aunt,' he added. "'Yes,' said Chase. "'Well, well, perhaps it isn't so bad as we think,' said Mr. Fairbrother, causing Chase to stare at him thoroughly startled this time by the extent of the rosy old man's optimism. But he was now dwelling upon the funeral. Tomorrow he must leave black boys. No doubt he would find his affairs in Wolverhampton in a terrible way. He said to himself, tut-tut, his mind absent, though his eyes were still upon the tulips. But his annoyance over the office in Wolverhampton was largely superficial. Business had a claim on him, certainly the business of his employers. But his own private business had a claim, too, that, moreover, would take up but a month or two out of his life. After that, black boys would be sold, and would engage no more of his time away from Wolverhampton. Black boys would pass to other hands, making no further demands upon Peregrine Chase. It would be a queer little incident to look back upon, his few acquaintances in Wolverhampton, with whom he sometimes played billiards of an evening, or joined in a whist drive, would stare, derisive and incredulous, if the story ever leaked out, at the idea of Chase as a landed proprietor, as a squire, as the descendant of twenty generations. Why, no one in Wolverhampton knew so much as his Christian name. He had been careful always to sign his letters with a discreet initial, so that if they thought of it at all, they probably thought him Percy. A friend would have nosed it out. There was a safeguard in friendlessness. Chase was a reticent little man, as his solicitors had had occasion to remark. Nutley found this very convenient. Chase, making no comment, left him free to manage everything according to his own ideas. Indeed, Nutley frequently forgot his very existence. It was most convenient. As for Chase, he wondered sometimes absently which he disliked least, Fairbrother with his weak sentimentality, or Nutley, who was so astute, so bent upon getting black boys brilliantly into the market, 
and whose grudging respect for old Miss Chase, beneath his impatience of the tyranny she had imposed upon him, was so readily divined. Chase stood looking at the bowl of tulips. It seemed to him that he spent his days forever looking at something, and deriving from it that new, quiet satisfaction. He was revolving in his mind a phrase of Mr. Fairbrother's, to the effect that he ought to go the rounds and call upon his tenants. They'll expect it, you know, Fairbrother had said, examining Chase over the top of his spectacles. Chase had gone through a moment of panic, until he remembered that his departure on the morrow would postpone this ordeal. But it remained uncomfortable with him. He had seen his tenants at the funeral, and had eyed him surreptitiously when he thought they were not noticing him. They were all farmers, big, heavy, kindly men, whose manner had adopted little Chase into the shelter of an interested benevolence. He had liked them. Distinctly, he had liked them. But to call upon them in their homes, to intrude upon their privacy, he, who of all men had a wilting horror of intrusion, that was another matter. He enjoyed being alone himself. He had a real taste for solitude, and luxuriated now in his days, and particularly his evenings at Blackboys, when he sat over the fire, stirring the great heap of soft grey ashes with the poker, the ashes that were never cleared away. He liked the woolly thud when the poker dropped among them. Those evenings were pleasant to him, pleasant and new, though sometimes he felt that in spite of their novelty they had been always a part of his life. Moreover, he had a companion, for Thane, the greyhound, slim and fawn-coloured, lay by the fire asleep, with his nose along his paws. There existed in his mind a curious confusion in regard to his tenants, a confusion quite childish, but which carried with it a sort of terror. It dated from the day when, for want of something better to do, he had turned over some legal papers left behind by Nutley, and the dignity of his manner had disclosed itself to him in all the brocaded stiffness of its ancient ritual and phraseology. He had laughed. He could not help laughing. But he had been impressed, and even a little awed. The weight of legend seemed to lie suddenly heavy upon his shoulders, and he had gazed at his own hands, as though he expected to see them mysteriously loaded with rough hierarchical rings. Vested in him all this antiquity and surviving ceremonial. He read again the almost incomprehensible words that had first caught his eye, scraps here and there as he turned the pages. Quote, there are three teams in domain, thirty-one villains and fourteen bordars, that is, the class who should not pay live Harriot, the furrow-long measures forty roods, that is, forty lengths of the ox-goad of sixteen and one-half feet, a rod just long enough to lie along the yokes of the first three pair of oxen, and let the ploughman thrust with the point at either flank of either the sod ox or the sward ox. Such a strip, four rods in width, gives an acre. Unquote. Quote, there is wood of seventy-five hogs. The hogs must be panage hogs, one in seven, paid each year for the right to feed the herd in the lord of the manor's wooded wastes. Unquote. What on earth were panage hogs, to which apparently he was entitled? He read again, quote, 
the quantum of liberty of person and alienation originally enjoyed by those now represented by the free tenants of the manor is a matter of argument for the theorists the free tenants were liberi homines within the statute quia emptores terrarum and as such from twelve eighty nine could sell their holdings to whomsoever they would without the lord's license still less without surrender or admittance saving always the condition that the feffi do hold of the same lord as feffor and the feffi must hold i e must acknowledge that he hold there must be a tenure in fact and the lord must know his new tenant as such some privity must be established the new tenant must do fealty and say quote, i hold of you the lord unquote. an alienation without such acknowledgment is not good against the lord unquote. he laid down the papers could such things be actualities this must be the copy of some old record he had not got hold of but no he turned back to the first page and found the date of the previous year it appalled him to think that since such things had happened to his aunt they were also liable to happen to him what would he do with a panage hog supposing one were driven up to the front door still less would he know what to do if one of those farmers he had seen at the funeral were to say to him i hold of you the lord then he remembered that he had not found the people in the village alarming he remembered a conversation he had had the day before with a man and his wife as he leaned over the gate that led into their little garden on either side of the tiled path running up to the cottage door were broad beds filled with a jumble of flowers pansies lupins tulips honesty sweet rocket and bright fragile poppies lovely show of flowers you have there he had said tentatively to a woman in an apron who stood inside the gate knitting it's like that all the summer she replied my husband's very proud of his garden he is but we're under notice to quit she spoke with an unfamiliar broad accent and a burr that had prompted chase to say you're not from these parts no sir i'm from sussex it's not a wonderful great matter of distance i'm wanting my man to come back with me and settle near my old home but he says he was born in kent and in kent he'll die that's right approved the man who had come up i don't hold with folk leaving their own county it's like sheep take sheep away from their own parts and they don't do near so well oxfordshire don't do on romney marsh and romney marsh don't do in oxfordshire he was ramming tobacco into his pipe but broke off to pull a seedling of groundsel out from among his pinks he crushed it together and put it carefully into his pocket i made this garden he resumed carried the mould home on my back evening after evening and sent the kids out with boaches for road scrapings till you couldn't beat my soil sir not in this village nor my flowers either but i'm under notice and sooner than let them pass to a stranger i'll put my baggin-hook through the roots of every plant amongst them he said and spat twenty-five years we've lived in this cottage and brought up ten children said the woman the cottage is to come down and make room for a building site so mr nutley told us the man continued we'd papered and whitewashed it ourselves said the woman i laid them tiles sir me and my eldest boy 
said the man, pointing with the stem of his pipe down at the path. A rare job it was. There wasn't no garden, not when I came here. Twenty-five years ago, said the woman. They both stared mournfully at Chase. I'm under notice to quit too, you know, said Chase, rather embarrassed, as though they had brought a gentle reproof against him, trying to excuse himself by this joke. I know that, sir. We're sorry, the man had said instantly. Sorry? They had never seen him before. Yet they were sorry. Miss Chase, your aunt, sir, liked my garden properly, said the man. She'd stop here always, in her pony chaise, and have a look at my flowers. She'd say to me, chafing-like, You've a better show than me, Jakes. But she didn't like peonies. I had a fine clump of peonies, and she made me dig it up. Lord, she was a tartar, saving your presence, sir. But a good heart, so nobody took no notice. But peonies, no, she wouldn't have peonies at any price. There's few folks in this village ever thought to see black boys in other hands than chases, said the woman. Tis the peacocks will be grieved, dear, dear. The peacocks, Chase had repeated. Folks about here do say, the peacocks'll die off when black boys goes from Chase's hands, said the man. They be terrible hard on a garden, though, do be peacocks, he had said further, meticulously removing another weed from among his pinks. 5. That had been an experience to chase, a milestone on his road. He was to experience much the same sensation when his lands received him. It was a new world to him, new because it was so old, ancient and sober according to the laws of nature. There was here a rhythm which no flurry could disturb. The seasons ordained, and men lived close up against the rulings so prescribed, close up against the austere laws, as once the masters and the subjects of the land that served them, and that they as loyally served. Chase perceived his mistake. He perceived it with surprise and a certain reverence. Because the laws were unalterable, they were not necessarily stagnant. They were of a solemn order, not arbitrarily framed or admitting of variation according to the caprice of mankind. In the place of stagnation he recognized stability, and as his vision widened he saw that the house fused very graciously with the trees, the meadows, and the hills, grown there in place no less than they a part of the secular tradition. He reconsidered even the pictures, not as the representation of meaningless ghosts, but as men and women whose blood had gone to the making of that now in his own veins. It was the land, the farms, the rickyards, the sown, the fallow, that taught him this wisdom. He learned it slowly, and without knowing that he learned. He absorbed it in the company of men such as he had never previously known, and who treated him as he had never before been treated, not with deference only, which would have confused him, but with a paternal kindliness, a quiet familiarity, an acquaintance immediately linked by virtue of tradition. To them he, the clerk of Wolverhampton, was, quite simply, chase of black boys. He came to value the smile in their eyes, when they looked at him, as a caress. End of Story 1, Sections 4 and 5